In Greek mythology, there was a character named Proteus who could change his appearance and form at any time. You try to grasp him like water, he becomes wind. You try to catch the wind, he becomes fire. And so he was this escape artist who would elude your every attempt to snare him. Modern psychologists talk about the protean self. Because in post-modernity, there is this great tendency to take on one self after another. To reinvent yourself and your appearance. Whether that is with one fashion, one makeover, one form of education or title. We try to become a different person, seemingly, every day. And yet, Proteus needed to be chained. He needed to be harnessed. And that's what we need, as we saw last week. As the law of God comes to shackle us, to define us, to tell us who we really are. There's no escaping it. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, Romans 3 says, that every mouth may be stopped, that all may be held to account. The law comes so that we will own our own guilt, our own sin. And yet, once we do that, there's still another potential evasive maneuver. Yes, I am sinful. Yes, I have evil within me. But then to blame that on someone else. Such a reflex was seen in the very first confrontation with sin, was it not? God says to Adam, where are you? What have you done? Adam says, the woman. The woman who you gave to me. So, although it seems like he's blaming the woman, really he's blaming God. You gave her to me, you made her, and she made me do this. We hear it today, don't we? God made me like this. No, he didn't. He didn't make us sinful and wicked. That's the very simple point of our text Tonight, Ecclesiastes 7, 29, God made man upright. It's very plain, very simple, unambiguous. God made man righteous, holy, no hint of evil in man and his creation. But man has sought out many schemes. Though the tendency is to blame others and most grievously and tragically to blame God, the Bible will never allow us to do that. James chapter 1, you remember, it says, Let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt others. Psalm 5 says, Evil may not dwell with God. 
First John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Utter purity, holiness, righteousness. And so the source of evil can never be God. It has to be located in sinful man. Now here, it is difficult because if you follow certain logical formulas in the sense that all that exists have has been ordained and created by God, and evil exists, therefore he made it from a perhaps humanistic logical standpoint, you might reach that conclusion. And yet, remember, the Bible doesn't allow for some independent logic to govern our reasoning. The Bible has its own logic and its own parameters in which we must stay. Because if we go out and speculate and concoct our own theories and our own systems with our own curiosities and speculations, we'll end up in a maze from which we will never escape. But when we stay within Scripture, letting Scripture define both the answers and, yes, the problem, we will see that wisdom comes from this source. That's what Ecclesiastes is, is a book of wisdom. And the conclusion of Solomon in this very sobering chapter is this analysis. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. It has been said that original sin is the only doctrine that can be empirically derived. And yet, that's really not true, because simply looking at the facts through sinful eyes will not lead you to that conclusion, because there are no such things as brute, uninterpreted facts. They're always filtered through your lens. And so, though there is evil, though there is horror and unconscionable acts in the world, sinful man will never draw the conclusion, therefore, I am sinful, therefore, the world is fallen. So even here, we have to submit to the fact that no doctrine really is obtainable simply from experience. Scripture must govern our reasoning. So, firstly, we see the original purity of man. The original purity of man. If we read together uh, Heidelberg Catechism Question and answer six, printed there in your bulletins. Did God create man thus, wicked and perverse? No, but God created man good and after his own image, that is, in righteousness and true holiness, that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. God made man upright and good. No qualifications, no exceptions. Nothing compromised in this original purity. 
And again, this is something we have to accept by revelation and not by intuition. Because if you simply look around in the world, you might think, well, what is, is what should be. If you wear ill-fitting clothes, you might sort of get used to them. Or if a faucet leaks perpetually, your children might think the faucet is supposed to do that. Or if you say enough foul words, they might start sounding fair. So you can never judge from your own present experience the way the world should be. Here we have to accept the original revelation and word about how things were designed to be. That's why Genesis chapters 1 through 3, although they are so short relative to the rest of Scripture, they are so vitally important for our doctrine of God and man. Turn back then to Genesis chapter 1. In this passage about creation, And you remember the refrain, when God makes, he then judges his creation to be good. And then on the sixth day, he says, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God is not a minimalist God, but he is lavish in his generosity, giving all things in creation for man to enjoy. But then notice verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. All is good in the other days, but now on this crowning masterpiece of the sixth day, he makes man, and because man is his image, it is very good. The height of goodness, the pinnacle, the very pearl of God's eye is very good. God made man in his spitting image. We sometimes hear that girl is a spitting image of her mother. She speaks exactly like her or her mannerisms are Definitely from her mom. We are made in the spitting image of God. In the beginning. In knowledge. In righteousness. And holiness with dominion over the creatures. And this doesn't mean that we're made little gods. In some way that we share this spark of divinity. But it does mean that we were made as much like God. As it is possible for a creature to be. To love the truth, to exercise lordly dominion and care for the world, to have righteousness and wisdom. In ancient Egypt, it's, archaeologists have found recently a uh, tablet with uh, Pharaoh's picture on it, and it says, the image 
of Ra, or the image of God. And it's in that environment that Moses writes Genesis, saying, no, not just one man, not just one king, the image, but all man made in God's image. All man sharing in his likeness, as it were, like a father and a son. And there's a great glory there. In fact, some theologians have said it is possible that Adam had this luminosity about him, that he was actually bright in his countenance and face because he walked with God. And certainly Moses, when he saw God, reflected that glory. Now, there's a certain amount of speculation there, but we don't have to speculate about the fact that God made man to be like him in every way, and he did not fall short in any respect. There is this integrity about man's constitution, spiritually, physically, as this organic unity and person. This integrity is very crucial to uphold. If you're building a bridge, you want the concrete and all the metal to have this consistency, this integrity all the way through. You wouldn't drive over a bridge where one part is compromised. The whole thing will collapse. But this is really the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church when it comes to man's creation. That there's actually something deficient in man's original nature. Because God made the spiritual part to be good, but he made the natural or fleshly part to be inherently corrupt. And all that was holding man from falling was this so-called donum superadditum, or the superadded grace that God had given. And at the fall, that grace was taken away, and so man necessarily was tempted and bought into the lie of the serpent. You could see how dangerous that is, because then what does salvation become? It becomes man's cooperation with God to restore that nature. But the Bible says, no, we were created in our nature with absolute pristine perfection. No holes or gaps, no lack of consistency in that perfection and integrity. God made man upright. There is no fault in our creation. This is why we can never assign the cause of evil to anything in creation. There is no amount of investigation you could do into the actual character and constitution of how things are, of how we were made, to say we had to sin. In fact, sin is, by its very nature, inexplicable, irrational, doesn't make sense. For really, there's no good reason Adam should have bought into the lie of Satan. And yet, he did. And that is the place where we locate the beginning of evil. In Adam's rebellion, paganism says that everything that is has always been. So if there's good and evil in the world, then good and evil have always existed and always will exist. It's this eternal substance. But Christianity says, no, 
God made all things good. There was an introduction of evil, a beginning point. But as Herman Bavink insightfully says, there is no origin of evil, but only a beginning. In other words, there is no nothing about the way the world is, the way that our characters are, that demands depravity in any respect. The fall happened solely because of Adam's choice and rebellion. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And so we see, secondly, then, the radical perversity that is introduced into the world. Some of you physicists know the rule, no matter is created or destroyed. And that is true. Evil is not something that comes from outside, from outer space that invades us, but rather it becomes a perversion, a twisting, a corruption of what already is good. And then it becomes bent and turned against God and his goodness. J.C. Ryle says that man in his ruined image is like a temple that has been destroyed. All the material is still there. In fact, if you go to Rome and see some of the ruins there, you can tell the glory that used to be, what it once was, but no longer is. Its substance is still there, but its form and function are all lost. And so, looking at man is the same thing. You can see the greatness and glory in sort of this darkened form. The capacity to be creative, to think, to imagine, to wonder, to enjoy beauty. All these things because were made in the image of God. And yet, in sin, we have exchanged that glory for the glory of another. That is, in fact, Paul's conclusion in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and creeping things. And so instead of worshiping the one who made us, instead of bringing to him that thanksgiving and praise that he alone deserves, we become turned inward. We glorify ourselves. We enjoy ourselves. And it's no surprise then that we exchange the use of our bodies to serve Righteousness and instead now serve wickedness. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so this exchange of glory means this great plunging into all sorts of heinous and vile sin. Sexually, Paul will go on to list 
the ways in which we gratify the desires of our flesh materially to clamor after the accumulation of goods and to covet what others have in authority to reverse roles to perhaps use our place to either dominate or manipulate others and not to serve others. Sin takes many forms and they are all ugly. But they all have one source. The fountainhead of sin is man's disobedience in the garden. Romans chapter 5 puts it very plainly and unambiguously. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This means that sin and wickedness is a matter of inheritance and not imitation. This was the teaching of Pelagius that the reason we're bad is Adam set a very poor example for us. And every child will learn from their parents and simply do what they do. And so Adam did wrong. And so all his children just saw what he did and followed. But it's much more radical than that. It's not simply that we're inherently good and innocent. And then we see poor behavior and follow it. No. Sin corrupts our very natures so that they are irreparably twisted and bent against God. That's why when David confesses his sin, he says, In sin my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in iniquity. Not to say that he's blaming his mother for his sinfulness, but rather the source of his sin And action is his corruption. Think about how really important that is. Yes, David committed this sin that was so scandalous and so shocking. And yet he traces the roots of that sin, the the fruit that he bore in his life, back to his own dark heart. And it's something that, in writing that psalm, he invites us to do as well. Do you believe that you are that sinful? That you are capable of the most heinous and atrocious actions? If you don't really believe that, you haven't understood the radical extent of that poison that has come to us from Adam's sin. Nature begets what is corrupt. Believers and unbelievers alike produce offspring that is by nature, as Paul says, Ephesians 2, 
by nature children of wrath. So if there's going to be blessing, it's not going to come through that nature. It's going to come from a supernatural source. From a supernatural change and transformation. And that's what we see in the last analysis, the sovereign provision. Because as question 7 says, the depraved nature of man came from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, whereby our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. And then question 8. But are we so depraved that we are completely incapable of any good and prone to all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. This question summons us, it invites us to reach the conclusion that Paul himself wrote in Romans 3, reflecting on Psalm 14. There is no one who does good, not even one. God looks out and sees all the hustle and bustle of the world. Men seeking after this or that, and of all the things that they seek after, some apparently noble perhaps or beneficial to others, others of course destructive, But in the last analysis, no one looks for God, the creator. No one looks to say, I want to please him, to glorify and exalt him. We come out of the womb saying the very opposite. I want to please myself. And now then we are prone to all evil, incapacitated, incapable of doing what is truly good. Our hearts are fossilized. There is a connection then between total depravity, which says that every faculty that we have, mind, heart, and will, is corrupt, and then total inability, which says in this position we don't have the ability and freedom to choose God. This is why the doctrine of free will doesn't take sin as seriously as the Bible does. There can only truly be a free will when there is a freed will by the Spirit of God. Let me read for you from the Synod of Dort, which has some very good insights about what is needed to deal with this radical problem and disease. And this is from the section 12 about regeneration. Unless we are born again by the Spirit of God, there can be no true change. This regeneration is so highly extolled in Scripture that renewal New creation, resurrection from the dead, making alive, which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no way affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion or such a mode of operation, that God, after he has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, 
to be converted or to continue unconverted, but it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or resurrection from the dead, as the scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, so that in all whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated, and do actually believe. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence itself becomes active. Wherefore also man himself is rightly said to believe and to repent by virtue of that grace received. Simply an explanation of what Jesus tells Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus had failed to realize it. Maybe it'll just take a little reshaping or new direction or a persuasion of my nature with some incentive. No, you must be born from above. New creation is what is necessary. Nothing less than for this old man This old man, captive, enslaved, absolutely incapable of doing that which is good, to then be made alive in Christ. That's why the New Testament so often describes our state as dead in sin. Dead. There's no amount of coercion or action that you can do for a dead person to make him alive. Only by the Spirit breathing into a dead person, just as at the beginning that God breathed into that form of dust and made man, so we must be made a new man by the Spirit. The old man dead and buried, the new man risen and righteous. This should remind us of something, of someone of Christ himself. Because it's no accident that he's called the second Adam. That he undergoes that very temptation that the first Adam had so woefully failed. That this second Adam will see past the deceit of the evil one. Will refuse to play on those terms will prefer and choose and love the good rather than the what is evil, even to his own hurt. And so we don't know precisely the location of where evil began, but we do know where it ended. In Christ, when he died, the old man and its dominion and power dies with him. So that now, not just the possibility of salvation, but salvation in actuality is given to all the chosen people of God. In these things, God is telling us to lay down our arms, to no longer fight against him, no longer to act in mutiny and rebellion, but to lay down our arms to come to the foot 
of the cross, saying, There is no good in me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we bow humbly before you, knowing that you are pure and evil will not stand in your presence. And yet we do thank you that though our sins were as scarlet, you have washed us as white as snow and that you have made a new and living way for us by sprinkling us clean with the blood of Christ. O Lord, we know that sin continues to reside in us, even as those who are declared righteous before you. And so we pray that you might root this out from us, that you would search us and try us, and that you would cleanse us from these things, and that we would be able to return to you once again and to find Uh, true healing, and true forgiveness. We thank you that these things are ours through him who loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.